Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 5, The Rise of Chimea. In this episode, we shall discuss the rise of the mystical and secretive tradition of alchemy. In our last episode, we discussed the first pervasive chemical theory, Aristotle's four-element theory, with four basic idealized substances, air, fire, earth, and water, and four ideal qualities, hot, cold, dry, and wet. We now travel back to Egypt, well known in the ancient world for practical chemistry. The difference now is that we return to Egypt after Alexander the Great of Macedon conquered much of the Middle East and Greece in the 4th century BCE, uniting the two civilizations and cultures in many ways in what we call the Hellenistic period. The name Hellenistic means one who speaks Greek, from Elas, the Greek name for Greece. One of Alexander's military leaders, Ptolemy, set up a kingdom in Egypt and made the city of Alexandria the capital of the kingdom. Ptolemy and his son created a temple there dedicated to the Muses, hence the Latin word museum, plus the Serapion, the library of the temple of Serapis, in a capacity we might now call a research institution and library. Some estimates place the number of scrolls combined at these sites at around a million, but others at around 40,000. Here, the great Egyptian practical chemistry mingled with the great Greek philosophical tradition and chemical theories. But the Egyptian mysteries of religion overtook the largely secular Greek philosophy, especially when it came to the Egyptian art, that is, Chimea. In Egypt, Chimea was feared as well as respected, for astrologers could predict the future, chemical technicians could change substances, and priests could call down curses upon people. This likely even increased these Chimea practitioners' feelings of political and personal power. You never know what might happen to you if you argued with or offended such wizards. This fearful respect also inspired the Chimea workers to be ever more mysterious about their knowledge, so that their writings from that period used obscure and symbolic language. This created a kind of feedback loop. The power made them mysterious, which made them even more powerful, and so on. So let's look at some of the symbolism that came from the mixing of Greek and Egyptian knowledge. In a previous episode, I noted that the people of this time knew of seven metals— They also knew of seven moving heavenly bodies. To people who already found allure in the number seven, this could be no coincidence. So the Hellenists matched the lists as follows. Sun equals gold. Moon equals silver. Venus equals copper. Mars equals iron. Mercury equals mercury. Jupiter equals tin. Saturn equals lead. Even names of substances could be given based on these correspondences. For example, there is an old name that might be familiar to you for silver nitrate as lunar caustic. Here the lunar part references the moon and silver. Even the name mercury for the liquid metal comes from this correspondence, for originally the metal was called something like liquid silver in various languages, even in English as quicksilver, where the quick prefix means liquid. Other symbolic terms for mercury include seed of the dragon and milk of the black cow. Two faults with this mysterious terminology appeared. First, 
any charlatan could now step up using high-sounding language that was obscure to most people, and there was no way to expose him. Second, if each person used his own idiomatic mystery language, other practitioners of this chimea would have difficulty following him, and the whole field of chimea's progress would slow to a crawl. Keeping secrets doesn't advance things. The first named practitioner of chimea surviving in literature was Bolos, who lived in Mendes in the Nile Delta around 200 BCE. To promote himself, he used the pseudonym Democritus, but I shall refer to him as Bolos so as not to confuse him with the Greek atomistic philosopher. Remember that Aristotle's four-element theory said if you adjust your proportions of qualities right, you can transform anything into any other thing. Naturally, Bolos extended this transformation idea into making metal into another, particularly cheap metals like lead or iron, into an expensive metal, that is, gold. This transformation of cheap metals into gold became known as transmutation. Heck, if you can make liquid water into air, that is, steam, by heating it, or heat a bluish rock and make a metal, copper, why not make something cheap into gold? So, Bolos's main research was finding the right chimea transformation method to make gold. His surviving writings give a variety of recipes for transmutation. But did he meet a golden color or actual gold? For example, if you can make brass, an alloy of copper and zinc, then you have actually created a golden-looking metal which is not gold itself. Remember that to the Aristotelian philosophy, the quality, in this case, metallic nature and goldness of the object, is the reality. Let me read a sample of Bolos's writings. This is from Salzburg's From Caveman to Chemist, in which he quotes Bolos from J.M. Stillman's The Story of Alchemy in Early Modern Chemistry. Here is the mystery. The serpent Ouroboros, this composition which in its ensemble is devoured and melted, dissolved and transformed by the fermentation or putrefaction. It becomes a deep green, and the color of gold is derived from it. It is from it that is derived the red called the color of cinnabar. This is the cinnabar of the philosophers. Its stomach and back are the color of saffron. Its head is a deep green. Its four feet constitute the tetrasomy. Its three ears are the three sublimed vapors. The one furnishes the other its blood, and the one gives birth to the other. Nature rejoices in nature. Nature triumphs over nature. Nature masters over nature. And that not for a nature opposed to such another nature, but for one and the same nature proceeding of itself by the process with trouble and great effort. But thou, my dear friend, apply thy intelligence to these matters, and thou wilt not fall into error, but work seriously and without negligence, until thou hast seen the end. A serpent is stretched guarding this temple, and he who has subdued it commences by sacrificing it, then roasts it, and after removing its flesh of the bones, makes of it a step to the entrance of the temple. Mount upon it, and thou shalt find the object sought, for the priest, at first a man of copper, has changed color and nature, and has become a man of silver. A few days later, if thou wish, thou wilt, and him changed to a man of gold. Wow. Just wow. A quick word of explanation about the beginning of that um, passage. The Ouroboros is a mythical snake eating itself, pictured as a circle showing the snake's tail in its own mouth. 
We shall revisit this myth of the Ouroboros much later in our story in Organic Chemistry. I don't want, however, to give the impression that nothing new actually appeared in the world of practical chemistry. There were advances in glassmaking, for example. By the Hellenistic period and early Rome, technicians and artisans had glues, dyes, artificial pearls, medicines, and fake gems. Roman concrete, called opus caementicium, was popular for construction. Apparently, there were at least 28 varieties of this concrete. By the first century CE, there was the first known indicator paper, which changed color when detecting some chemical reaction in solution. In this case, papyrus strips soaked in gall extract detected when a solution of blue vitriol had iron adulteration. This was one of the first methods of qualitative analysis, or determining what a sample contained. For bleaching cloth from a wall painting in the excavated city of Pompeii, we know that Romans used a pot of burning sulfur over which wool cloth was stretched. We now understand that burning sulfur gives off sulfur dioxide fumes as the active bleaching agent. For bleaching linen, the cloth was dipped into a basic solution, but like the old stories of tramping on grapes to make wine, so did the linen bleachers tramping on the alkaline cloth, leaving sores and blisters on their feet. Then the alkaline cloth was laid outside to dry in the sun. We now understand this as a photochemical reaction of the alkaline solution with light, generating hydrogen peroxide, the bleaching agent. And with cotton, this cloth was bleached in sour milk, now known to be a dilute solution of lactic acid, and then laid out in the sun to complete the bleaching process. But the chemical theories that fused with secretive mystical religious rites to create a Hellenistic chimea are the main story of this episode. And let's turn our attention more to some of the detailed goals of this later chimea. From Aristotle's scheme, we know that he thought metals and minerals grow inside the earth, a bit, perhaps, like plants. Also according to this system, growth is a way to reach perfection. Furthermore, Gold is attacked by no known substances and doesn't rust or corrode like iron. So metal perfection is represented by pure, incorruptible gold. Likely, base metals like lead grew underground and gradually reached perfection over hundreds of years by turning spontaneously into gold. You might then say that gold is fully ripe. Regarding the practitioners of Chimea, All they had to do was find the right substances to ripen lead or iron in a faster way than underground in order to effect a transmutation into gold. We can make an analogy to biology again here. Old living creatures don't grow fast or at all. Only young creatures do. So likewise with metals. We want to find young metals or some process to make a metal youthful. Presumably like plants grow from seeds, so should metals grow from metal seeds. And even more, a seed contains the species of plant even when the plant dies. The same must be true for metals. So, the full process for a successful transmutation requires the death of an amount of metal, and then growing new metal from a metal seed to ripen into gold. Easy, yes? Well, of course, each person practicing Chimea had his own individual sets of rituals, formulas, and chants, along with styles of heating and mixing reagents, and a variety of astrological methods. But the goal was the same. Kill the starting metal, break it down into primal matter as a kind of fertilizer for the metal seed, introduce the seed, and let it grow into gold. 
the artisan watched the process for color changes, which indicated the step in the lengthy, difficult, and sometimes dangerous process. Killing a metal was done by heating it or oxidizing it, or adding sulfur, so as to turn the metal black, called melanosis from Greek for black. Upon the metal's death, a seed was added, perhaps a tiny bit of gold. Or also, perhaps the artisan would add a catalyst, a modern word for a material that facilitates a reaction without being consumed in that reaction, which was a coloring agent in liquid or powder form. These were called tinctures and xerions. The catalyst itself for the transmutation was often called the philosopher's stone, a name that has come down to us from ancient times and even used as the title for a popular children's book in a series about a school for magicians, that is, the Harry Potter series. Then the metal was heated in a semi-controlled way for a while to help the growth into gold. To whiten the metal, add orpiment. We call it arsenic sulfide. So now the metal became silver, partway to perfect gold. This was leucosis, from the Greek word for white. Then polysulfide solution, called in Greek theon hudor, meaning divine water and sulfur water, was added to color the metal yellow. This was xanthosis, from the Greek word for yellow. The result was yellow metal, of which surely some had to be gold. How did one tell if it was gold? The only known way 2,000 years ago was by cupellation, which was analysis with fire. Gold was perfect and unchangeable, so fire would not affect it. Anything which burnt away or reacted could not be gold. And often there was found to be a small amount of gold or perhaps silver in the end result, indicating that the process was a success. But was it really? No. We now understand that the starting material, lead, which the artisan used often, has small amounts of naturally occurring gold and silver. Plus, did any practitioner actually run a blank using unreacted original lead sample to test the idea? Running a blank simply wasn't known or considered back then. If you did run a blank with unreacted lead, you immediately suspected that transmutation was a farce anyway. There was also a fourth step, in which gold was turned into a violet color to create a kind of uber-gold. This process was called iosis, from the Greek word for violet. This process creates a substance powerful enough to convert other substances by a type of fermentation. Among the legendary practitioners of Chimea were the Empress Cleopatra and Maria the Jewess, who lived somewhere around the 2nd or 3rd century CE. Maria is still famous for one chemical and culinary piece of apparatus called the double boiler, or the bain-marie, which is French for Marie's bath as well as using around 80 different glass, clay, and metal apparatuses in her chimea for distillation and sublimation. There was also Moses of Alexandria from the 1st or 2nd century CE, Hermes Trimestigus, a shadowy figure from Hellenistic times, to whom is attributed a variety of such writings, and Zosimos of Panoplis from around the year 300 CE, who wrote the first extant volumes about chimea. The problem with this chimea was its ever more mystical and obscure practices. In an increasingly desperate Roman Empire, becoming Christianized and antagonistic to Greek philosophy and pagan Egyptian rites, chimea was a prime target. 
The Roman emperor Diocletian in 292 CE was afraid of plentiful gold debasing Roman budgets and taxes, along with a revolt in heretical Alexandria. He decreed that all books on this art be burned. So now, much of this now persecuted system went underground. And there are only a handful of Egyptian papyri that survive to this day. Around a century later, the Temple of Serapis was raised and rebuilt into a Christian church. By 415, the last of the great philosophers and Chimea practitioners in Alexandria, Hypatia, was murdered. Those remaining fled the collapsing Hellenistic and Roman world to find safe harbor in the east, toward Persia, bringing whatever small number of manuscripts they could carry. And it was there that the Egyptian art, Chimea, took root again. In our next episode, we shall talk about the rise of Arab Chimea under the Arabic name, Al-Kimiya. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast. (laughs) 